I'm Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns. And I'm Rebecca Hackmeyer, and I use she, her pronouns. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to Rad, Rad Child, Child Podcast. Podcast. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Way to Go and Room to Grow. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about our favorite books to help decolonize Thanksgiving. And before we kind of jump into that, um, I'm going to hand it over to Rebecca, who's going to talk a little bit about what that even means. <laughs> All right. Yes. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Um, and thank you, Seth. So um, according to my research, uh, decolonizing Thanksgiving, kind of that concept means uh, essentially to reject the myths about Thanksgiving and the myths about the people who came across the ocean on the Mayflower, and also the stereotypes that persist about Indigenous peoples. Mm. Um, and so something that I thought was really interesting um, was that myth number one, um, so let me, let me back up. Um, one of my resources for this is Judy Dow, who's Abenaki, um, and she wrote a piece for um, Oyate, that is called Deconstructing the Myths of the First Thanksgiving. And Ooh. we will put an, a link to this in our show notes. Yes, it's a really excellent resource. Um, and the first myth is that the first Thanksgiving <clears throat> occurred in 1621. Um, and Judy Dow uh, kind of deconstructs this myth by pointing out that no one knows when the first Thanksgiving occurred. And this is, I'm quoting her now from this article. People have been giving thanks for as long as people have existed. Indigenous nations all over the world have celebrations of the harvest that come from very old traditions. For native peoples, Thanksgiving comes not once a year, but every day for all the gifts of life. Mm -hmm. To refer to the harvest feast of 1621 as the first Thanksgiving disappears Indian peoples in the eyes of non-native children. Yeah, a lot of my resources were saying similar things as far as like, and of course, right, there are many indigenous peoples and many nations. Um, but in general, especially when we're talking about like the, the Wampanoag people who were the, you know, the people who allegedly had this first Thanksgiving um, with the, the uh, colonists, um, basically, they like they, a lot of my resources were saying the same thing where it's like thankfulness is just like ingrained into that it's like a daily a daily thing and not you know oh we have this one day where we're thankful right um, yeah right and reading that it reminded me of the conversation that we had about um calendars and this mm. idea that um centering thanksgiving um I, I i loved it felt very it was a big aha moment for me reading that idea that referring to the feast as the first Thanksgiving disappears Indians, Indian peoples, because we've talked a lot about how calendars, first of all, only center certain holidays. And mm -hmm. um, we've talked about how there are multiple different calendars and to kind of make young children aware of that can be really decolonizing. Yeah. Um, Decentering in the best way. Um, and so this, this is just another example of, of the value in doing that. And also, um, I don't know, just really, it hit me. And, and the fact yeah. that it even still hits me, even, even as someone who's been researching this, who's been working to try to, um, to try to decolonize myself and my actions. Um, it was like, wow, I, I need, I need this daily reminder, um, that I am not yeah. at the center of the world. 
Yeah, I had a similar, I'm going to talk about it a little later, but I had a similar moment when I was reading one of the books that I'm going to talk about, um, where like, it was something that I knew, but just the way it was stated, just like, was like a punch in the gut. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think sometimes even when we know information, not like we're desensitized to it, but I don't know, I think in this particular situation, I was thinking about it sort of as like, oh, you know, a factual thing. Um, And then like, they just like humanized it for me. Um, But anyway, talking about, um, you know, this is sort of skipping ahead a little bit, but what you were talking about with like the first thing, like saying like, oh, it was the first Thanksgiving, even like from the colonists point of view, it was interesting in uh, one of the books I was going to talk about later, which is History Smashers, the Mayflower. Um, One of the things they were talking about is uh, that the colonists celebrated like multiple days of Thanksgiving. um, And like the way that they would celebrate Thanksgiving was like having a religious ceremony and not like having a party and eating. Um, and, and the other days of Thanksgiving that were documented, like through letters and things, we probably don't talk about because the first one that was documented followed the burning of a Pico village. Um, and they were like, yay, let's, uh, let's have a Thanksgiving about that. Uh, and, the, and another one was after the death of one of the sons of one of the Wampanoag leaders, right? So we don't want to remember that we were thankful for problematic things. Right. <laughs> so we create this fictionalized story. But I thought that was interesting that like, even in like talking about both cultures, they both have different, uh, you know, th- things about thankfulness and, uh, you know, neither of them was having one big celebration, you know what right. I mean? Like, right. so from both cultures, it's fictitious. You right. Know? We're in, bo- in both cases, we are erasing what is true. And mm-hmm. in both cases, we're erasing what is true in order to center white people yep. as the heroes. Oof. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, can I share one more quote? Yes, please. While we're, while we're on this kind of topic, um, I wanted to share something from um, Dr. Debbie Reese of Nambe Pueblo. And Dr. Debbie Reese is the founder of the amazing mm-hmm. resource, American Indians and Children. In- oh my gosh. Sorry, I think I think I use that resource. So I think it's the most used resource I've ever used during like one single resource I've used for researching one topic for this topic. Yes. It's, a, and it's incredible. And I tripped over my tongue, so I'll say it again. The Amer- American Indians in Children's Literature, um, mm-hmm. that website. It's just, yes, it's it's a powerful, powerful space um, to, to kind of um, cruise around in. Um, and I wanted to share something that Dr. Reese says about Thanksgiving. Um, in her post, uh, good books about Thanksgiving, and that long story short, there really are not any. But uh, <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know that's. Uh, but let me let me just share what what Doctor Doctor Reese says. Um, what I'm getting at, in part, is that I don't want to be a player in your story. I don't want to be on your stage. I want you to see me and Pueblo people, in my case as a people that existed and exists on its own merits, not as minor characters or colorful ones in the story that America tells about America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and, and, and the quote goes on, but I will, we can just direct folks to go read the whole article because it yeah. all is really, really valuable. Yeah, definitely send me a link to that and I'll throw it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I have so much to say about this topic honestly like the um cat was teasing me because as i was reading um the the book that i just mentioned the history smashers the mayflower i kept coming to her and being like did you know this did you know this like it was so fascinating to me just like how 
fictitious the story that we learn is and how many facts are left out and and it's just anyway I'll get into that a little bit later but before we sort of dive in uh another thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about before we get started is is like language around this so like I know I was a little nervous to cover this topic at first because I felt like I didn't know what the sort of accepted terminology was especially like I have a unique situation coming from the United States and now living in Canada because the terminology is different here like what um is accepted here uh in terms of talking about like indigenous folks um we like like i learned so in canada we say first nations and i found out that that only refers to indigenous folks from what we now call canada so i thought that that was just like an umbrella term mm-hmm. um and so like so there's a lot of you know terminology out there so i just sort of wanted to clarify um a little bit about that um because i i want to give a shout out to ali joseph and violet duncan who uh were my lovely guests for the full episode we did on this and they graciously educated me about this um so if you're sort of speaking generally most the most widely accepted term is like indigenous peoples with an s to acknowledge that there are many nations however right if you're talking about a specific person and you or a specific nation and you know the name of the nation right you should defer to that so like if i was talking about violet for example um instead of saying like oh this is my friend violet she's indigenous i would say like this is my friend violet she's tahino because i know that that's the nation that she's from um that's a, another thing to note that i i learned is that uh the word nations is generally more widely accepted than the word tribes mm-hmm. um and uh another thing that that you can do right is to learn the pronunciation of that nation in their language so this is another thing again i this is a total learning curve for me i learned a lot from researching for this episode and um talking to people and a lot of the terms that we use in english for example like iroquois or mohawk uh, to talk about those nations are actually like anglicized like that's not what those nations call themselves Mm -hmm. um so for example like i live on what um you know would be considered like quote unquote mohawk land but that nation is actually called Gonyugehaga. so like learning i mean first of all like learning about the land that you're on is super important there's oh gosh i think it's called nativeland.ca um it's native-land.ca is the website it's a great website and although it's a .ca website it's for all of north america and a sprinkling of other places um and you can basically just put in where you're living uh and it'll tell you you know whose land you're on um and a, and you, a little and a little bit about those nations and it also has um really good resources for like if you're going to do land acknowledgements and things like that it has further reading and things um things like that so I would definitely check that out so that's like a thing that you can do right is to learn about the land you're on and how and right how to pronounce um the names and things like that um and uh so all of that being said uh right you might hear indigenous folks refer to themselves using different words like um if you listen to the past episode um you know one of the guests was referring to themselves as indian or native american things like that and like that's totally okay for folks to self indigenous folks to self-identify that way um but generally those words are like okay for them to use and you know not okay for us to just be like hey are you an indian um (laughs) the like I said, the general accepted term is indigenous and things like that. So just so like, I feel like sometimes it can be confusing if we're like, oh, I thought the accepted term was this, but you're calling yourself that. So like, it's still okay for them to identify that way, but not for us to identify them uh, like that. So anyway, because there was a lot, sorry, there was a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff before we do- dove into the episode today, but I felt like it was important to kind of talk about that stuff before we uh, just jumped into it. Absolutely. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Yeah, you're so welcome. Uh, and thank you for, for sharing too. It's a team effort here at Rad Child Podcast. Um, so yeah, I'm going to jump into my books now. Uh, so my first book uh, is called Giving Thanks, a Native American Good Morning Message. Um, and that is by uh, Chief Jake Swamp. 
uh, who is from the Binyuge Haga and Hajudishone nations. Uh, and it's illustrated by Erwin Printup Jr., who is from Cayuga and Tuscarora nations. And this is an older book. It's from uh, 2002, and it's uh, uh, by published by Lee and Lowe. And um, oh, I uh, before I even read the book, I want to just um, read the author's note in the beginning that will sort of explain, give a little preface for the book. The words in this book are based on the Thanksgiving Address, an ancient message of peace and appreciation of Mother Earth and all her inhabitants. These words come to us from the native people known as the Haudenosaunee, also known as the Iroquois or Six Nations, Mohawk, Oneida, Cayuga, Onondaga, Seneca, and Tuscarora. The people of the Six Nations are from upstate New York and Canada. These words are still spoken at ceremonial and governmental gatherings held by the Six Nations. Children, too, are taught to greet the world each morning by saying thank you to all living things. They learn that according to the Native American tradition, people everywhere are embraced as family. Our diversity, like all the wonders of nature, is truly a gift for which we are thankful. So this is basically, um, like that, that was saying, it's sort of a, uh, a message that's spoken, um, you know, daily for for in some uh in some traditions and also is still spoken at uh you know meetings or bigger bigger gatherings and things like that um so basically this is uh chief jake swamp's adaptation of that for children um and in english um so the book is like pretty simple in nature it basically like thanks mother nature for various elements of nature so i'm just gonna like read a couple of the first pages to give you a feel for it so it starts out to be a human being is an honor and we offer thanksgiving for all the gifts of life mother earth we thank you for giving us everything we need thank you deep blue waters around mother earth for you are the force that takes thirst away from all living things we give thanks to green grasses that feel so good against our bare feet for the cool beauty you bring to mother earth's floor thank you good foods from mother earth our life sustainers for making us happy when we are hungry fruits and berries we are thankful for your color and sweetness we are thankful to good medicine herbs for healing us when we are sick and it sort of continues that way right thinking like the animals the winds thunder the sun the moon the stars um and then uh on the last page it finishes out spirit protectors of our past and present we thank you for showing us ways to live in peace and harmony with one another and most of all thank you great spirit for giving us all these wonderful gifts so we might be happy and healthy every day and every night. Um, so it's just like a, a really, uh, I think it's like sort of a really sweet message. And um, the things, my sort of way way to goes are, I mean, first of all, it's own voices, both the author and illustrator um, are, uh, are from uh, the, the Six Nations um, that they were talking about. And it's just like a really beautiful message. The illustrations are really lovely, just like, you know as a baseline um and i it was interesting when i was talking to i believe it was gosh i can't remember if it was violet or ally who was talking about when we were having this discussion well i think it was ally one way to decolonize thanksgiving is um you know and there are different opinions on like whether or not thanksgiving should even be celebrated um but she was saying right if you're gonna celebrate thanksgiving one way to decolonize it is incorporating indigenous indigenous traditions into your thanksgiving and so like I think this is a really lovely way of doing that. Like she was saying, even examples of like, you could, you know, uh, make traditional indigenous foods and incorporate that into your meal, right? Um, or things like that. And I think that this um, this sort of good morning message and it's it sort of goes along with the theme of being thankful, right? But it's from an indigenous perspective. 
Um, and so, yeah, I just thought that that was a really lovely book that literally the only complaint I have about this book is I wish there was more back matter. Um, <laughs> like I wish there was more resources. Like I would love to learn and know more in the back. There is, um, a, the, a simplified version of the, uh, of the address in the original language, um, that it was spoken in. Uh, and I'm going to share, there's, I found a really lovely video of, oh gosh, I forget the name of the singer, but of, um, an indigenous singer, like singing this message. Hmm. Um, oh, it's so beautiful. Um, so I'll share that as well. Uh, because, you know, obviously not, um, just to get it right for me looking at this, I can't, I don't know the pronunciation and the way that the words are, um, meant to be spoken. So I think it's, it's nice to be able to hear it. Um, but yeah, overall, I just, I really liked it. And I thought it was kind of a nice, um, a nice way to, uh, sort of incorporate, you know, indigenous traditions, um, into that. If you're, uh, you know, if you're someone who still wants to celebrate Thanksgiving, which, you know, uh, I think there are ways to do that in um, appropriate ways. If that makes does that make sense, right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but anyway, so I'm gonna I'm gonna shift to my second book, which is Plymouth Rocks: The Stone Cold Truth, which I just think is so funny. Um, I wish I could like I don't know if you can if you have anything in front of you, but the cover of this is so funny. It's like it's Plymouth Rock with this, it's this little anthropomorphized Plymouth Rock with like a smiley face and like a little indigenous, indigenous kid like hugging it. It's very, it's very cute. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so this is by uh, Jane Yolen, who is a very prolific uh, author. She's written almost like 400 books um, and illustrated by Sam Street. Um, and uh, who's a fairly new illustrator. I think this is his second book. Um, and it was, it's brand new. It just came out in, uh, 2020 and it's, uh, by Charles Bridge Publishing. And so <laughs> this book is, it's pretty, it's like kind of a funny book. Um, it's actually from, from the perspective of Plymouth Rock. <laughs> um, and so it follows the history of the rock itself. Uh, and while a fact checker, this sort of woman with these red glasses and a red pen is there correcting rocks, uh, account of history. <laughs> So um, this was actually published for the four, 400th anniversary of the alleged landing on Plymouth Rock, um, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, so there's only uh, there's only about six pages out of the 30 pages that are sort of relevant to decolonizing the Thanksgiving story in this um, book. But I still I mean, I'm going to talk about why, you know, why I still think it's worth it. But um, but just so you know, it's not a book that's all about thanksgiving and decolonizing thanksgiving it's literally following the history of this rock but part of the history of this rock has to do with that um so they do sort of tackle that so rock as rock is referred to as rock in this book um <laughs> rock sort of speaks in verse rock has like a poem that they'll say on every page and then the fact talk blah, blah blah and then the fact checker just like talks like a regular person um which like, I don't mind. I just think it's, I think this book is very funny. Um, <laughs> just like, but anyway, so it starts, um, it literally starts from like rocks. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to read just to give you an idea. I'm going to read you the first page. So, um, and each like poem is like titled. So this one is called rock speaks. 
You know that I'm old and rather well known, but everything old is not set in stone. Two kinds of history, not all of it true, not all of it false. It's now up to you. Research and study, discuss and choose. Some call it fiction, some call it news. And then the fact checker is saying, Stone has a long memory, but memory does not always speak true. So I will check the facts. If rock statements are misstatements, alternative facts, in quotes, fabulations, or just plain lies, my red pen will let you know. I love that they talk about alternative facts. It makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so it literally starts out from like when rock was part of a glacier and like, you know, so it starts from the very, very beginning of Rock's history, and then it talks about, um, you know, there's, like, just animals around for a while, and talks about how Rock was moved several times and broken and all, all these different things of Rock's history. Um, but I'm going to uh, sort of skip to the relevant pages, and since there's there's only a couple of pages, I'm, I'm just going to read them, um, the ones that are relevant. So basically, the first, so it's talking about, uh, before this, it's sort of talking about how there's just animals around for a while, um, and then uh, it sort of shifts to talking about the indigenous people. So it says, rock solid, native people fished, fished nearby me. Their children sometimes tried to climb me. Their fires kept me warm and toasty, cooking dinners that were roasty. But alas, I do not eat, and so I never tasted meat. I am a rocketarian. Which is, I think, my favorite line in the whole book. Um, it's just such a silly book. I love it. Because it's like this combination of being silly, but like being serious that, that like they do really well. Um, and so then the fact checker says, Rock is correct on this one. The indigenous people of the eastern woodlands have inhabited the area for more than 12,000 years, thousands of years before the pilgrims arrived. Many, uh, back, back then, many tribes, including the Wampanoag, Patuxet, Mohegan, Pequot, uh, Narasiga, Nasut, and others lived in the area. Some of them still live there to this day. So, like, I appreciate that they start by, um, by acknowledging that like they were there first and they lived there for many, many years. Um, you know, successfully. Um, and then it says, "Rocking the boat." New men and women passing by on occasion caught my eye. Their color, clothes, and tongues seemed strange. Even a rock can note that change. Different people, same old ground. An old word, world lost, a new one, quote-unquote, found. Um, and so one thing that I appreciate about that, even before I get into what the fact checker is saying, is that, like, rock is, like, the the like the settlers, like, the, the colonists are being othered in this. They're saying, like, ooh, they're, you know, they're, their skin color is different than I'm used to, right? Their their language is different. So like they're the ones being othered, which I kind mm -hmm. of appreciate because like they are the other in this story. <laughs> um, and so I kind of appreciate that language. And then the fact checker says, Rock is missing a lot of detail here. Settlers didn't just quote unquote, find a new world. They colonized it. After taking over the Southern part of the East coast, many English, French and Spanish settlers traveled North. These settlers considered the Americas to be a clean slate, a new world which they could create a future for a new future for themselves. The newcomers thought of Europe as the old world and brought over aspects of their culture, cultures, histories, and religions. The native people, however, lived in, had lived in the Americas for thousands of years and did not consider their world new. The settlers also brought violence and disease, which dramatically reduced the Native American population. Much of this started well before the Mayflower ever set sail. Um, so what I what I like about the way that they sort of word everything is that like, and you know, some of the before I'm getting ahead of myself, but some of the complaints that I read was like they didn't feel like they took it far enough when talking about like the effect that they had on the indigenous people, but like I kind of disagree in a way. Like I like that they like they do acknowledge right they brought violence and disease, which dramatic dramatically reduced their population, um, which like to me is an is gentle enough language that you could read this to a younger child 
uh, without saying like they murdered and raped them, right? If you didn't want to say that. Um, mm. But with an older child, you could get into what, like more of what happened. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's a good gateway like to talk about those things, but without explicitly necessarily using like harsh language that might make it inaccessible to a younger child. Um, if that makes sense. So I don't know, you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I guess the only, I agree with you that um, I appreciate that it's mentioned. I do think that the way that it's phrased is like you're pointing out, it's gentle, like it's a little bit passive. Like it's, there's Mm. a difference between bringing violence and disease and like even enacting violence. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, like yeah that's a good point the word bringing maybe like bringing disease and enacting vi- like the violence right. is a little passive I agree. right like they were violent right like they killed like you know like so so the choice to kind of um, cushion it i i hear what you're saying about how it helps it to work and to introduce a little bit of that truth to a younger audience but it's interesting because this book um, what I'm seeing in a lot of the reviews is that it's really better for folks who already have have knowledge of The Rock, right? Like it's kind of, um, um, and when I say The Rock, I mean Plymouth Rock and not <laughs> The Rock. Uh, uh, like, so it's, it's interesting because it's kind of dismantling, it's dismantling a known story. But if it's mm-hmm. the first thing that you're introducing to a child, they don't already know the story. Yeah, totally. If this is this is definitely for, and we talk about a lot, right? Like, who is the book for? Um, I think this book is definitely for a kid who has heard the sort of fictionalized, right, story of the traditional Thanksgiving. I'm using air quotes that you can't see that you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote, Thanksgiving story, right? And obviously, who knows about Plymouth Rock because the whole book is about Plymouth Rock. Um, and you know, so it, it's. The point of the book, I think, is to kind of break down the myth that, um, I mean, like overarching, right, it is talking about the rock. And one of the major points of the book is that like Plymouth Rock was not like there's no mention in any of the settlers letters or writings that like there were that they stepped on a rock right that this rock <laughs> like, was important at all yeah but <laughs> like, meanwhile this rock was like carted around for years and moved to different places and is seen as you know a big uh, monument but like really like uh, where did that even come from right um but so they're breaking down that myth and then they're also you know breaking down these other things but i do agree with you that um i think this book is for kids who already it's it's too uh it's like a reactive book to like oh you learned this thing let's teach you something else right um let's teach you so i don't think this is like a first introduction um to that for sure and i don't know unfortunately i don't think there really is a book that fits that bill yet that exists um and i would love i would love for that book to exist but anyway i just want to i'm just going to read the last page that's sort of relevant to this and it's called rock salt and pepper who welcomed them? I was the first. Then came the tribes with a great burst of friendship, food, and community. They gave these gifts to the ones from the sea, but everything began with me. And then the fact checker says, hold on a minute. To be clear, Rock did not welcome any pilgrims. That legend was invented 120 years after the landing when a church elder named Thomas Fonts shared a story he allegedly heard as a child. No one knows for sure why Fonts spoke about a humble ch- chunk of granite being stepped upon. Perhaps the story stuck because it offered a symbol of a new nation. 
The story of the Pilgrims' first Thanksgiving with the Wampanoag people is a legend, too. Native people did greet the colonists and later shared food with them, but that is not the whole story. More and more colonists soon arrived and took Native land to build their houses. They treated the Native people brutally and dishonestly. The common image of Native people happily celebrating Thanksgiving with colonists is now considered to be offensive by many. Um, so one of the things that I want to, that I just realized as I was reading this book, um, as I was reading the passage, is that, uh, you know, it's interesting because I don't know, I wasn't able to find information about if they had any kind of consultant. Um, I'm looking quickly now and don't see anything about any kind of consultant or anything like that. But I am noting, I'm noticing that some of the language that, that they're using is some of the language that I just said isn't the most, um, you know, widely accepted language. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious about, about that and if they sort of did their research or what their sort of background was on that. Um, right, interesting. But, uh, but anyway, so again, I, I appreciate that they're at least acknowledging, right, that like this story is fictitious and like the, um, and again, they're saying, right, they took their lands and they treated them brutally and dishonestly. And again, like, you know, I, I sort of am of the opinion that like, I think that you could go into that more with a child who's ready to hear more about what that actually means. Um, but, Mm -hmm. but at least for, you know, a younger audience, they can understand that they treat, they write those words mean that they weren't, they didn't treat them nicely. Right. They were bad to them, um, and took their lands and things like that. Um, so, and like I said, the rest of the rest of the book is more about rock being moved a million times and broken and, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, and then I just want to read the, the last thing that the fact checker says, which says, which is rock's real story is a lesson for us all, but it's not about being the stepping stone to the United States. It's this over time. We all change and adapt. We diminish and grow. We make up stories and imagine glories. We are pieces of the same whole. We're still working towards making sure everyone in the U S has the liberty to do those things. Our task as citizens of the world is to bring all nations together to become real partners, compatriots, and friends. Stories bind us together, and if a rock can understand that, perhaps we can too. Um, and what I what I like about that passage is that I appreciate that it um, acknowledges that like not everybody has the same rights and freedoms, mm-hmm. and we're still working towards that. Um, and so, so yeah, overall, I um, my sort of way to goes are, I you know I think that we can kind of there's pros and cons to this, but I kind of appreciate, like, I think maybe they could have taken it a little bit further, like we were talking about with the wording, but I do appreciate that it's like a little bit on the gentler side, just so you can, I think it allows you to read it to a wider age range. Mm-hmm. Um, they, like I was saying, I appreciate that they sort of other the settlers when they're talking about them, like you're the ones who are not supposed to be here. Um, and I just, alternative facts just made me laugh. Um, <laughs> um, and then, uh, as far as room to grow. So, I mean, I, like I said, I don't know, um, the whole, like the whole, it's not own voices in that these folks are not indigenous, but like also it's not, the whole book isn't about 
indigenous folks. I mean, it's also not a voice system that neither of them are rocks. So uh, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, Touche. But, yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, I don't know. I would like to, I tried to do research. I couldn't really find anything on if they had a consultant for this. So uh, I'd be interested to know that information. But like what, like I was saying, some of the language felt a little bit like outdated. But then like, it's interesting because Native American is still accepted, like widely accepted in the United States. Whereas here in Canada, it's like, you don't say that. Um, so I don't know if maybe it just has to do with that. Right. Um, but then I, I also like just in general, I wish, and maybe like this wasn't necessarily the purpose of the book. Um, but I sort of wish it had focused more on the interactions between the settlers and the Wampanoag people. Like personally, like I, I don't, I don't mean to be judgy, but like, I, I don't know how many people are really that interested in the history of Iraq. Like I'm more interested in that history. <laughs> But I don't know. Um, right. Like I appreciate that they dispelled that myth. But like for me, after like about um, Plymouth Rock, you know, not being the first thing that they landed on. But after like the part that I read, I was sort of like bored. I was like, okay, and now the rock is just being moved a bunch of times and broken. And uh, like, and I'm an adult, and I was like, eh, okay, I'm kind of over this rock. Um, but I still like that. Being said, I still think it's uh, it's a good book, and I, I appreciate um, the sort of. I, I like the oh, you're fine. <laughs> I like I like the sort of like fact checker aspect idea. I think it's really cute. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's it's sort of a good sort of reactionary book to maybe a kid who has already been taught at school this sort of fictionalized Thanksgiving story. Um, so yeah, right. It, um, like it's 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 a clever it's a clever way to to to. Uh, it's a clever way to kind of dismantle some of these myths, right? Like it's yeah. um, having it told from the rocks perspective. Uh, that reminds me, it reminds me of the one that came out recently. What was it? Um, there was a book that came out about um, the 50th anniversary, right around the, it was also the building. And Oh, uh, Stonewall. Yes. Oh my gosh. I was thinking that too, which I've, I've heard not great things about the book, but it made me think about the idea of uh, an unusual narrator. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think that this, I think that, um, I actually think that I have similar criticisms of <laughs> books. Like, I think that there's this, um, yeah, like, it's a unique, interesting way to tell the story. But I, when I was reading the 50th anniversary, what was what it's called Stonewall, right? Yeah, um, I think so. Let me see picture book. Let me just see if I can find um, a Stonewall, a building, an uprising, a revolution mm -hmm. is the name of the book. And it's told from the perspective of the building. Um, and I think it, one of my issues with it was the way that it, took sort of a neutral position mm. and i think that there's like it like it uh it just sort of described what was happening in very yeah. um and when i say neutral there's no such thing as neutral right like like we every every position that mm. we take we come from a stance right like everything is political that's my belief every nothing's neutral uh so when in in stonewall uh the building quote unquote, what is describing what it's seeing and kind of describing the actions of the police in these very neutral terms mm. and then describing the actions of the activists in these very quote unquote neutral terms. Um, I felt like it, it kind of did, it, it didn't really, um, 
we're gonna have to cut some of these like brain fry oh you're fine um let me think about how to say that like it in describing actions in a quote-unquote neutral way um it ultimately kind of positioned um the police in kind of a non-aggressive position um which i don't think is really true to the story that we want people to understand about what happened that night um and during that time yeah and so kind of kind of similarly just like what we're talking about kind of making the language a little bit gentle and a little bit passive like i think that there could be an interesting um take on how each of these books does that and maybe why using a like Mm. non-animate stone um kind of gives them the leeway or the the uh the rationale for doing so but what that really does to the story i think what i um appreciated and definitely there are still problems with this book. Um, but what I appreciated about this a little bit more than Stonewall was that's what I liked about the fact checker being there um, was that the fact checker was there to be like, yo rock, like that's not what happens. Um, and give a little bit more of like, even though it was like facts, there was uh, a little bit more of a, like an emotional element to it for me than the rock just being like, this is what happened. Um, that that made that like for me made it a little bit different than Stonewall, where it was just like this is you know it just felt like very like this is what happened and that's it. Um, yeah, you're no, you're. I think you're absolutely right. I think that that you're right that there's this this added layer that Stonewall doesn't have, right? Like yeah, like but Plymouth. I think both. Oh, go go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say in in Plymouth Rocks, it seems like the Rock is trying to tell kind of the accepted mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fact checkers coming in and kind of pushing back against that accepted mythology. And in Stonewall, it's like the building is um, kind of trying to take on both roles. Like it's, mm. it's, it's telling a story that feels untold, but it's doing so in a t- too neutral a way. So you're right, they're kind That's of doing right. different things, but kind of each using this. Yeah, but it's funny that you said that because I was thinking the same thing about Stonewall when I was reading this. So wow, same page. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we um, maybe we just are so literal. We're like rock, stone, rock, stone. <laughs> I didn't even think about, about that. Position. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um so I'm going to talk about my last book. So it's funny, these kind of like in- increase in reading level, like the first one is sort of for a younger reading level. Um, the second one was a little bit more, had a little bit more words. And then this one is like a full on 200 page, like middle grade book, which I usually don't um, talk about, but this was such a good book that I like couldn't, couldn't pass up on talking about it. Um, so uh, this is it's called History Smashers the Mayflower uh, and it's by Kate Messner and uh, illustrated by Dylan McConus and um, I'm just going to read the the inside of the book says with, with special thanks to Linda Coombs an educator and historica and historica oh my god I'm going to re, re-talk <laughs> re-words um, with special thanks to Linda Coombs an educator and historian from the Akina Wampanoag tribe who served as a consultant for this book so they did have a consultant for this book um, from the actual tribe they're talking about uh, which like yay it's the least we could do right like that's yes correct um, it shouldn't be that uh that exciting to me that they actually got a consultant for this book, but unfortunately it is. Um, and that was uh, published by Penguin Random House, and it's also rather new. It was published in 2020 as well. 
And so um, this is a nonfiction book for older kids. I would say like nine and up, um, you know, maybe depending on the reading level and things like that. But it's about 200 pages. Um, although it does include like illustrations, it has like artwork, like pictures of actual artwork and things like that. And it also like has um, some comics and like some asides that are on parchment and it has also like real texts from letters. Um, so it's sort of almost like this multimedia piece. It has a lot of different things going on, but in a way, like it sounds like it's too much, but it's really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way that it's kind of broken up where to me, it didn't feel too overwhelming. Like, oh my God, I have to read a 200 page book. Like it was fun. Um, and it all integrated really well. And so basically at its most basic, you know, level, it's about the, you know, English settlers and their relationship with the indigenous peoples and sort of like their, who they were and why they came over and all these kinds of things. Um, so I'm just gonna, because right like that, I feel like that doesn't really do the book justice. I'm just going to read the table of contents to give a little idea of the different uh, content here. So like one is who were the pilgrims anyway. So like it talks a little about like who they were, where they were coming from, right. Um, two voyage on the Mayflower, but not the Speedwell. So they're talking about their voyage over um, three journey across the sea is about you know, the whole journey. Oh, I'm also going to give the caveat that I did not read the first three chapters uh, because I received this book like that day before the recording and was like, ah 200 pages um so i started at chapter four where it became relevant to our topic um so i'm just gonna give it with the caveat of i skimmed the first couple of chapters um uh but uh but anyway so four is welcome to plymouth rock or maybe not which again dispels that myth of plymouth rock um, and starts to talk a little bit about their their first interactions with the wampanoag people um then five is people of the first light which talks uh and actually pretty great detail about the Wampanoag people and sort of like their culture and traditions and, and things like that. Um, six was a long winter at Plymouth. Uh, seven is the pilgrims and Wampanoag people, um, which actually what I found really interesting from about that uh, chapter was they were talking about um, just like how the, how the English settlers like quote unquote, like, you know, they bought land from the Wampanoag people, but like the Wampanoag people had a different understanding in their culture of like, land and ownership so like i'm just going to read this excerpt in wampanoag culture the land was understood as a dish or a bowl from which everyone could eat in other words the land took care of everyone it wasn't viewed as anyone's quote-unquote property the creator owned the land so people couldn't own it any more than they could own the air or the water so there is this idea that like like yeah sure you're living on the land but like what do you mean we can't still hunt there or what do you mean we can't use this river because it's like yours now so there was like this mm-hmm. disconnect culturally um that i thought was like really really interesting to me um not you know not necessarily knowing that much about the Wampanoag people or their culture um and then eight was the the myth of the first thanksgiving which sort of makes self-explanatory and then nine was from the mayflower to the sea flower so it sort of goes uh in little chunks and talks about all these different things so my um my way to goes and i have so many because i love this flipping book um are first of all like i I mean, I would expect that in a book for this level, especially, but like that it names the Wampanoag people and isn't just like, oh, you know, the indigenous people or like the Native Americans. Um, Like, I think that's so important. Like you were talking about, like naming uh, indigenous peoples by their nations and like actually using the, you know, the words that they use and the titles that they use. Um, And I like, I mean, from my perspective, I think it's one of the books that painted the most like honest and historical depiction of like the Wampanoag people and their relationships and interactions with the colonists. So like, like it wasn't trying to like the whole point of the book is to 
uh, to break down those stereotypes. Like this, that's the whole point of this series, History Smashers, is that it sort of goes in and breaks, uh, you know, breaks down those kind of stories that we, you know, those sort of fictitious versions of history that we, um, what you were calling it, like that shared mythology, right, um, that we have. And mm-hmm. so, like, they were talking about, like, it, what they weren't out to, like, this book was not trying to make the colonists look good, you know what I mean? They were talking, also, like, wasn't trying to demonize that, it was just trying to tell truthful history, you know what I mean? And, like, one of the things they were saying is, like, one of the first things they did, like, they were exploring, you know, the colonists were exploring, and they, um, they found, like, a Wampanoag settlement, but no one was there, like, maybe they were out hunting or whatever, they weren't, no one was home. And they literally just stole a bunch of their corn. Like, they were just like, oh, look, corn. Uh, and then in one of the letters, like, that that had been shared uh, was like, oh, you know, we plan to, like, give them some beads or something in, you know, in exchange when we formally met them. And I was like, could you imagine if I went to your house, stole your TV, and then came back the next day and was like, but here's a cake. Right. Like, what? What? Like, it's so wild to me. And then they came back another time and stole the rest of the corn. And they were like, and they were like, and in this time, there was no mention in a letter of like paying them back in any way. And I was like, yeah, they just like, you know, or they were talking about like how they robbed their graves and quote unquote took the prettiest things. I was just like, okay, what? Um, you know, and like they, and they were talking about how like the Wampanoag people were generally like pretty helpful to the colonists. And, um, and meanwhile, like, you know, they were like they were talking about how and there were right before the mayflower came over there were other colonists that came from like spain and france and other places um and so you know that's another thing right there they weren't that wasn't the first interaction that the wampanoag people were having with uh with these you know uh kinds of people and um like and they were talking about like how before uh like with those previous people who had come over as well as with the people who came over the Mayflower, like how, you know, they were selling uh, indigenous people to slavery. And like, they were talking about, this was wild to me. They made an agreement with the Wampanoag people and they broke the agreement in the same day. They were like, like one of the things on the agreement was like, we're not going to bring weapons to our meetings. And then they had a meeting and the leader of the Wampanoag people was like, dude, like I left my bow, my bow over there. Why do you guys have guns? Like, literally the same day they made this it was just like right like it's like uh, horrifying yeah i I was just like and none of this like uh, like on the one hand like i'm like yeah that tracks like but on the other hand it was just like so like oh my god like you know when you're just like face palming when you're like reading i'm just like i can't and then you know of course they it also addressed like the erasure of indigenous cultures and languages as well as like the epidemics and like this was the paragraph that i was talking about that like really punched me in the gut so they were saying um talking about um the one of the epidemics that was brought over because the, you know historians don't know exactly uh, if it was you know smallpox or um you know exactly what the epidemics were so they just referred to it as the epidemic um that epidemic spread south from maine where europe where the european fishermen had landed before 1616 the wampanoag nation was made up of as many as a hundred thousand people in 69 different communities but the epidemic killed up to 90 percent of the native people in the region it wiped out entire villages including the community of patuxet which is where plymouth is now that's why when the pilgrims arrived in 1620 that's why the pilgrims arrived in 1620 to find cleared fields for farming but no people living there like it was just like a ghost a ghost town because literally it killed 90 percent of the population like like I, I don't know there was something about that the paragraph to me that was just like so visceral um and like it wasn't just like oh they brought disease you know like in the other book um right. which again right it's for different ages um but uh that to me was just like oof 
um so they do you know so they do tackle it in like a very um honest way that's not trying to sugarcoat things for sure um and then they you know dispelled a lot of myths uh, myths as well so like they talk a lot about how primary like we have a lot of primary resources um from the colonists but like they're not necessarily like accurate to history because right they wanted to paint the wampanoag people in a sort of a bad light so that they could justify taking their land and treating them poorly right um and so one of the quotes from the book says they meaning the colonists wrote about the native people they met providing us with some primary documents about the wampanoag Mm -hmm. people but those documents are limited by the pilgrims perspective the pilgrims didn't speak to the wampanoag speak the wampanoag language or understand wampanoag culture also it's important to remember that the english were there to they're aiming to colonize or take over the land that was more difficult to justify if you had to admit you were stealing it from people who had lived there successfully for thousands of years so in some of their documents the english had an interest in describing the wampanoag people as less advanced than they really were um so again i appreciate that it's like breaking down this idea that like just because we have a primary resource that says something doesn't mean that it's a fact right um, right, right right like i could write a letter saying anything um <clears throat> you know it doesn't mean that it's true Exactly. What's the intention? What's the Mm -hmm. intention of the writer? Who Mm -hmm. is the audience for the piece, Mm -hmm. like the original audience? And what are their aims? Exactly. And so that's why I appreciated, like I was saying that they, they also included, um, like the actual texts from some of the letters and things like that, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And then they did this, they did this really funny thing where they're, I'm going to skip down to the bottom of my notes, but um, they did these like quote unquote translations. So like what the letter said, and then like putting it into like modern day English. So one of the example is um, they were talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. I have put a crap in my throat today. They were talking about like robbing graves and the, the actual text said in the letter said, because we thought it would be odious unto them to ransack their sepulchers. Edward Winslow. Translation, only really rotten people would go around digging in other people's graves. So like it sort of takes the, uh, the text and puts it into like sort of this kind of comedic translation, which I, you know, for kids, I appreciate. Yeah, um, that's really, that's really powerful. Sounds like yeah. this is a series. I'm excited to explore this series. Yeah, it looks really good. They have one about the Titanic, which I'm fascinated about because I have a little bit of an obsession with the Titanic. Uh, I just find it so so interesting um, from a historical perspective. But anyway, they have they have a bunch of them. I think they have one about uh, women's voting rights. Um, I don't know if that one's out or coming out. <clears throat> but yeah, the series looks really great. Um, another thing, are you familiar with Squanto, the, the person? Um, uh, yes. Okay, so a lot a lot of us are familiar with Squanto, right, who um, was one of the Wampanoag people who uh, is known for, he, so he actually spoke English, um, because from people who had come there before, he had learned English, and so he was sort of a middleman between between the Wampanoag people and the, um, and the colonists, and basically, he, um, his name was Tisquantum, and they were just like, that's too hard, we're calling you Squanto, and right? I was like, what? <laughs> That is the most white person thing I've ever heard. But I was just like, um, again, I was like, that tracks. But like, really, we literally know this person is the wrong name because they were like, that's too hard. And everyone knows just quantum as quanto. Yep. And I was just yep. like, what? and we do it. We do it today. We do it in classrooms today. Right. Like yep. teachers are constantly still. I mean, we know better. But, yeah. Well, and we knew better then. Teachers yep. are constantly uh, nicknaming students. Yep. 
Um, or just like butchering their names and not asking like, how do I pronounce your name? And just like learning how to pronounce it. Like I had a friend and a lot of, a lot of people from different cultures, um, when they come over to English speaking cultures will sort of, uh, pick an English name for various reasons. So, you know, a lot of people don't want their name to be butchered. Right. So I had a friend whose name was Lily and she was Korean and, uh, she had a friend over, or I don't remember if how I learned her Korean name, but I was like, I want to call you by your real name. Just like teach me how to pronounce it. And so like from then on, I called her Unyoung and like, it was fine. But I was like, I want to make an effort to like call you by your actual name. Like I don't want to, unless you like what name you prefer to be called by, you know what I mean? But like, if you prefer to be called by that name, I want to call you by that name and not, you know, have to use this fluffy anglicized name that you, you know, got so people wouldn't butcher your name right right that you're sort of reconciling yourself too because you've learned over time that 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 white people just simply are not going to bother yeah and so I think that's something that we as you know you know English speaking people can do you know especially like to try and just like I was saying with like trying to learn how to pronounce um you know the names of the nations and uh, the indigenous nations and things like that like I think that's really important um is not just and I see it on podcasts a lot of times when people will just be like blah 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 and like muddle through a word and I'm like no like if you're like when I'm doing my research like I go out of my way like I couldn't for example when I was I started doing land acknowledgments on the main episodes um and I was trying to find the pronunciation of the land that I'm on and I was having a lot of trouble Google was not helpful so I went on a local community group and I was like hey does anyone know you know either how to pronounce this or how I can get in touch with the nation and pay them for teaching me how to pronounce it right Mm -hmm. um and and someone was able to um one of the local colleges here in McGill had a recording an online recording on their website of how to pronounce it and and they and I was sent that and I was like great like it wasn't that it took a little bit of an extra step for me to like reach out to someone and try and figure it out but like you can do it (laughs) you know what I mean it's not impossible absolutely um and And, like we should be doing the extra work (laughs) come on can you imagine can you imagine the world that we might be living in if rather than rather than gloss over and erase all of the negative things that white people did during that time that have, you know, extended very clearly into today, if rather than gloss over it and create mythology around it and erase, if we had just taken the time to get it right then (laughs) and, and learned, learned from our mistakes rather than covering them up. Well, that's why I think, you know, this is sort of getting slightly off topic, but like, I think it's so important. That's why when we have this kind of mythology, it's like this false mythology. It's like, how are we supposed to learn from our mistakes if we don't acknowledge our mistakes? Like if we're not, if kids aren't learning about the mistakes that were made, right, then those are going to turn into adults who don't know about the mistakes were made, who are going to turn into policymakers who don't know about the mistakes that were made, right? Um, that's, <laughs> welcome to 2020. <laughs> Oh no, it's too real. Um, but anyway, anyway, jumping back into the book, um, before I get too sad, uh, they, I don't know why I think this is going to make me happier. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so then they sort of jump into the chapter about Thanksgiving. And like I was saying earlier in the beginning of the episode, 
was interesting because they were talking about how the colonists had like multiple days of Thanksgiving and, um, you know, it was <laughs> religious ceremony. It was just like going to church. It wasn't like having a party um, and eating. And, you know, I was talking about the other days of Thanksgivings, right, that that followed burning down a village and that followed the death of, you know, indigenous folks and things like that. Right. Um, and that we don't, you know, we don't remember those, <laughs> you know, quote unquote. Um, and then I'm just going to read, read a quote about uh, from the book that says, what actually happened in the fall of 1621 was more of a harvest festival, something that was common in England and other countries around the world. Wampanoag people had a long-standing tradition of harvest ceremonies too, so the idea of giving thanks was nothing that the pilgrims invented. And their harvest feast didn't happen in November when America observes the holiday of Thanksgiving now. Documents suggest that the event we know as the first Thanksgiving actually took place in late September or early October, just after the crops were in. And everything we know about the event comes from one document. William Bradford never even talked about the celebration in his writings, though he did mention quote unquote bringing in the harvest so like literally we have one letter which is in the book you can read the text of um and that's where we have the basis for this event um which i think is wild um and then they were also saying which i thought was interesting based on winslow's writing the only foods we know that were definitely a part of the feast were venison and fowl which probably meant ducks and geese but more likely the pilgrim's meal it was more likely that the pilgrim's meal included fish shellfish and eels um, which I thought was interesting because I don't know anyone who has eel at their Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> um, I mean, there probably is someone, um, <clears throat> but I thought that, yeah, all, I appreciated that they sort of talked about, again, like talking about the sort of primary source, but like we literally are getting this from one single document um, that this even happened um, and uh, sort of debunking a little bit of the the stuff around that I thought was interesting. Um yeah, that's fantastic. That's I'm excited by that by that series. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I'm just skimming through my notes here because I don't know why this is here. Oh, they and they do. They also talk a little bit about right um, them forcing Christianity and them forcing you know taking a little bit. They dip into a little bit of like them. Um, you know, sort of robbing them of their language and their culture and and things like that. Um, and. Uh, you know and talking about why some people consider it problematic to uh celebrate thanksgiving it sort of had this excerpt <clears throat> it has these little excerpts on like parchment that are sort of like sort of like about um you know different things so this one was um uh linda coombs who was the um uh consultant for this book um you know talking about how she doesn't celebrate the holiday and sort of what that means to her um, so it has these sort of asides that I appreciate. And then, uh, and, and yeah, the, and the last thing I already talked about, which was the translation. So there was like so much good stuff in this, but I literally don't have a room to grow for this book. I loved this book. Um, I'm really excited for the rest of the series and, uh, and yeah, it was just, it was a really wonderful resource. And like, as an adult, like I appreciated reading it and I learned a lot. Um, yeah. So that's that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, good yeah. good reason to deviate to a to a middle grade or a or a juvenile yeah. level. Uh, yeah, honestly, I don't like I said I don't usually, but that one just looked so good that I was like, and also there were so few books about this topic, um, that I was like, I get my hands on this, uh, and you know what, go out of my comfort zone a little bit and talk about books for older kids. Right. <laughs> um, and then I have two honorary mentions. Um, one is actually not out yet; it's coming out in twenty twenty, um, and that's called uh, We're Still here the native american truths everyone should know 
Um, and I'm sorry, it's coming out in 2021. I think I said 2020. Um, and that's by Tracy Sorrell and illustrated by uh, Fran Lassac. And that is, um, I'm just going to read the little uh, blurb from that. 12 Native American kids present historical and contemporary laws, policies, struggles, and victories in Native life, each with a powerful refrain, we're still here. Too often, Native American history is treated as a finished chapter instead of relevant relevant and ongoing. This companion book to the award-winning We Are Grateful, Ojibwe Haga, which we're going to talk about a little later. Um, offers uh, readers everything they never learned in school about Native American people's past, present, and future. Precise lyrical writing presents topics including forced assimilation, such as boarding schools, land allotment, and Native uh, Native tribal recognition, reorganization, termination, uh, the U.S. government not recognizing tribes as nations, uh, Native urban relocations from reservations, self-determination, tribal self-empowerment, um, Native civil rights, the Indian Child Welfare Act, religious freedom, economic development, including casino development, Native language revival efforts, cultural and persistence, and nationhood. Um, so this just looks like an awesome book. I think, um, <clears throat> you know, we there is this idea that, like, oh, for a lot of people, that, like, Indigenous people don't exist <laughs> uh, anymore, that they're, like, a, a thing of the past. Right. Um, and so I really like that, you know, this book is called We're Still Here. Um, and, uh, it just looks, it looks really fantastic. I'm really excited for it. So that's something to look out for. And then the last th- last honorary mention I have, this is kind of a funny one, um, because it's sort of, I'm recommending kind of part of the book as relevant to this topic, but, uh, it's called Lena Bully is President and it's by Ma- Maya Gonzalez, uh, authored and illustrated by Maya Gonzalez. And it's published by, Refle- bleh, bleh, bleh. it's published by Reflection Press, which is her, um, small, uh, publishing company um and so the reason that while it's primarily sort of about bullying and kind of how to uh deal with bullying um uh one of the it's in the beginning of the first like maybe six pages of the book are one of the greatest explanations of colonizing that i've ever seen in my life and like they sort of talk about colonizing as like a major form of bullying um but honestly it's like it's worth it. Just, I think like if you're struggling to explain what colonization is, I think that that offers a really great resource to understand what it is. So I wanted to talk about that as well, because I've never really, you know, other than right in the other books we were reading, it might mention it as an aside, like, Oh, colonizing, meaning they wanted to take their stuff. Right. Um, but it really explains it in depth in a couple of pages. Um, and it's really, it's a really wonderful resource. So I just wanted to share that. And now I will stop talking and hand things over to Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'll mention that Maya Gonzalez also does a beautiful job of, of kind of talking about um, and deconstructing colonizing in her book, The Gender Wheel as well, mm. where she talks about gender, um, like, uh, uh, kind of the gender binary it's a form of colonizing the body oh. and colonizing gender oh, that's so yeah. interesting yeah really powerful so the first thing that I wanted to share um the first thing I wanted to share it, it came to my mind when you were speaking about uh land acknowledgements and putting mm-hmm. together um how, kind of the research around that and it was interesting because I grew up believing that I um, that the land uh, on which I reside is the land of the coastal Miwok. Um, and that is something I've always loved to go and visit the, there's a replica village um, in one of our national mm. seashores called Kuliloklo, which is a place that I love to visit. And kind of, I think that they do a fairly 
um, well, I, I just have always appreciated, appreciated knowing that information about myself, but I recently learned um, that like many of us, I had incomplete information about that. And it turns out that Coast Miwok was, a, so this is a, I'm quoting now from um, someone who, uh, who heard a land acknowledgement that was done at one of our local city council candidate forums. And in that land acknowledgement, the host mentioned Coast Miwok and also Lekatuit. Um, and so uh, this person uh, did some digging and I appreciate it very much that they did this and, and learned that actually I live in the town of Petaluma and Coast Miwok is a linguistic grouping of tribal nations and Lekatuit mm. is how the first peoples of Petaluma self-identified. So now I have more information that I, the land on which I reside is actually um, the land of the Lekatuit rather than the land of the Coast Miwok. So um, I, I encourage everyone to track down the resource that Seth mentioned and also just do a little digging to learn truly about um, mm -hmm. how they should be acknowledging the land um, that they call home. Um, and the second thing I wanted to share was just another little excerpt from, from Debbie, from Dr. Reese, um, because it kind of informed the books that I chose to, sh that I'm choosing to share today. Um, in, in the article that I referenced earlier about, um, about Thanksgiving and books about Thanksgiving. And I should mention, I kind of flippantly said before that, well, there are none. Um, and that's not totally a complete, a complete <laughs> truth. I think that we both have found that there isn't, there really isn't a great option for um, kind of telling, quote unquote, the story of Thanksgiving from the mm -hmm. indigenous people's perspective. And that that's true. I think that one that is often looked to is Squanto's Journey by Joseph Bruchek, who identifies as Abenaki. But that book um, has been kind of I, kind of deemed problematic by Debris. Yeah. And I, I, I if, if Debris says it, I <laughs> I listen. Um, so what Dr. Reese suggests is that rather kind of then look for a palatable indigenous people's perspective on Thanksgiving, what we should be doing um, is kind of to really decolonize is to think about the way that indigenous peoples celebrate, um, mm. and specifically the way that they celebrate from, from nation to nation. Um, and so she says, you want to know about native people do you really want to know about us or do you just need, want us so that you can do your thing or celebrate Thanksgiving? Mm. You want me to tell you what I do for Thanksgiving? I understand that, but I think it's more important that you ask about, in my case, the Pueblo people. Who are we? Where are we? What are our celebrations? When are they? What are they about? And instead of asking a native person what they're doing for Thanksgiving, how about asking yourself about what you are doing and why? Um, so that really resonated with me. And again, that's from Dr. Debbie Reese of Nambe Pueblo on her, in her article, um, Good Books About Thanksgiving. Uh, and so what I wanted to share today were a couple of books that don't necessarily center Thanksgiving but center um, the, the idea of giving thanks and the idea of being in community um, and the idea of sharing food together, I guess would, mm. would be a common theme throughout the books that I wanna share. 
Um, and the first of those is we are grateful. Oh, let me make sure I'm saying that correctly. Hold on. Let me say that one more time. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, okay. The first book that I want to share is called We Are Grateful, Ojali Haliga, and it's written um, by the aforementioned Tracy Sorrell and illustrated by, um, I believe her name is pronounced Frane Lassac, um, and who are the author and illustrator of the wonderful title that Seth mentioned coming out in 2021, We Are Still Here. Um, and We Are Grateful, uh, Ojali Haliga, uh, was produced was published in 2018 um, by Charles Bridge Press, uh-huh. um, and it is and so uh, Tracy Sorrell is uh, a member of the Cherokee Nation, and um, Ms. Lasak is uh, U.S. born but currently living in Australia, and I don't believe that 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 she is Indigenous. Um, so let me pull up the right note here. I have a lot of tabs open. <laughs> um, okay, so Tracy Sorrell. So We Are Grateful was actually Tracy Sorrell's first book for children. She was formerly an attorney and a law professor. Oh. Um, and so then, and she decided that what she wanted to, um, basically she was looking for modern picture books that featured Cherokee children to read to her own child. And she did not find many. Um, and she's particularly interested in books, right, that are not um, kind of positioning uh, Indigenous peoples as from the past or in the past, but but positioning them as present today. So it makes mm. sense that her follow-up book is really centering that idea. Yeah, um, And so we are grateful, uh, won a 2019 Cyber um, Honor, uh, a Boston Globe Horn Book Honor, um, and... And it got just, it kind of got, a, it's getting a lot of, a lot of buzz. It got a lot of buzz and it's very well-deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and illustrator um, Frené Lassac uses um, a gouache, like kind of this watercolor and an American folk art style um, with very like colorful illustrations um, in this book. And so it is the, essentially on the first page, it says um, Cherokee people, say Ojali Haliga to express gratitude. It is a reminder to celebrate our blessings and reflect on struggles daily, throughout the year, and across the seasons. And then the story just um, goes through different um, times of year and kind of talks about, and it provides the name of the season um, in the in the language that's spoken by the Cherokee people. Mm-hmm. And, and then it kind of points out just the things that are celebrated during that time. Um, So it says, uh, when cool breezes blow and leaves fall, we say, Ojali Haliga. As shell shakers dance all night around the fire and burnt cedar scent drifts upward during the great new moon ceremony. Um, As we clean our house, wear new clothes, enjoy a feast, and forget old quarrels to welcome the Cherokee New Year. Um, And so, and the picture that accompanies that spread is um, many people, some wearing kind of maybe traditional attire, others wearing modern dress, um, all different kind of skin tones represented, all um, kind of gathered around a fire 
Um, hmm. And it's just, so throughout the book, it doesn't give, it kind of alludes to and touches on the different, the different ceremonies and the different holidays and the different traditions that are important um, to the Cherokee people um, with these just phenomenal illustrations that really feature community and family and people of all ages. Mm-hmm. Um, in the snow scene, there are these bears that are that are under the ground. You see kind of that cutaway of bears in a, in a burrow hibernating while children are building snow, snow people and pulling sleds. And there's a family with a baby. Um, and again, all sorts of different skin tones and different attire to kind of, to kind of uh, mm. send a really, send a message that um, we are of today. Uh, we are all sorts of people. Um, it's just really beautifully done. I love that. Yeah, it's a really gorgeous book. Yeah. And in every page... Um, something that my son noticed right away is that there is a pileated woodpecker in every page. So there's mm. also kind of something for, for the young reader to spot. And it's I think so that's helpful. helpful. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go, no, go ahead. I was just going to say it's so funny because I find that when I'm reading books, uh, I'm focusing on the words and I'm not, I don't take as much time to read illustrations or to look at the illustrations rather. And, you know, it's funny because the kids or, you know, sometimes I, I read to my wife. Um, we, we uh, you know, she's my, um, she's my second, second opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they'll, you know, whoever I'm reading the book to will notice things. And I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't even notice that. Especially the kids, like they'll point out, you know, they'll be like, meow, meow. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, there's a cat in the corner of this page. <laughs> I would have never seen that. Um, you know, so it's, it's funny the things are like when I was reading um, Ramadan around the world, for example, the the moon sort of takes you through all the different places. And I, I didn't, I don't know, like it didn't occur to me that the moon is on every page. On every page they went, hi moon! And like had to find the moon. It was really cute. Um, but it's funny the things that kids will notice. <laughs> right. And I think I think it does a nice job. I, I think that that is a clever trick to incorporate in books that are more informative or books that are more, um, like this book is, it uh, is almost a poem, right? It's almost like a, a poem of gratitude. So there isn't a strong narrative thread, right? There's yeah. a lot of rhythm to it. It goes through mm-hmm. the seasons. You like, um, but there isn't a narrative um, per yeah. se. So having something, so for the child reader, kind of letting these ideas and these words wash over them, but also having something to kind of catch their attention and and something to find on every page, I think is really clever. Um, and it doesn't, you know, I think it just all works together really synergistically. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So it goes throughout the seasons. I love that it, um, it talks about someone on one of the pages, there's kind of this, um, one of the, it shows a person who is dressed in, um, like fatigues, like camouflage. It says, um, we embrace a clan relative heading off to serve our country. And I think that's really, um, a nice moment. Um, to remember that there are many indigenous people in our armed forces and, and, and that that is another thing that is often erased um, Mm. in this country. And then at the end, there is, um, I mean, I'm skipping way ahead, um, but there is a beautiful double, like a double page spread that kind of shows all of the seasons all together. Um, And it ends with um, every day, every season, Ojali Haliga, 
we are grateful. Hmm. Um, I love that. Yeah. And then there is back matter. There is definitions of some of the moments that are kind of alluded to. Um, there is uh, an author's note and other kind of information. Um, an yeah. alphabet, the Cherokee syllabary um, is oh. included. So there's a lot of really rich awesome. information in the back for further further reading and further you know, thinking. It, it reminds me a lot about the giving thanks and Native Good Morning, um, a Native American Good Morning message that I was talking about in the first book I was talking about in the sense that it's like taking this idea of thankfulness that is so important to these different indigenous communities and like talking about that in their terms you know what I mean and not in like our terms of you know as you know white folks and colonizers Um, absolutely so I think that that's sort of an interesting way to still talk you know have like the uh, you know, the sort of essence and theme, like being, there's nothing wrong with being thankful and having a, t- a time of year to think about being thankful. But um, I think that, you know, incorporating these kinds of, you know, narratives of thankfulness, indigenous narratives of thankfulness is really important. Right. And um, pulling it out, you know, if you are a family who does celebrate Thanksgiving, pulling one of these books out and mm-hmm. incorporating that into that that time of year or that celebration, but also not relegating it to that time of year. Right. Yeah, oh, that's, that, it's funny that you said that I, I totally like had that's this train of thought earlier and got off the track but yeah that's one of the things that we talk about a lot right is like that yes it's good to you know like you were saying pull that off the shelf if you're celebrating Thanksgiving whatever um, but also that like you know, it's not like that's the one time of year we can talk about the fact that indigenous people still exist, right? right? Like we should be, you know, reading those books all year long. And just like we should be reading books about all different kinds of people all year long, right? Exactly. Um, but I think in a way it could be a good, you know, a good thing to incorporate and a good way to remember to, do, you know, to make it part of your tradition to read a book like that. Um, but but not just to say, oh, that's a once a year book. <laughs> right. And to point out that it's not, the whole, I think one of our whole overarching points is that gratitude and giving thanks for indigenous peoples is not a once a year yeah, thing, exactly. right? Like if we're going to pull this out at Thanksgiving, I think it's important to call attention to like, oh, isn't it interesting that we like make a point? And, you know, obviously every family's, every, every family's tradition is different. Maybe your family does sit down and practice gratitudes every evening. But for many of us, um, I think it's important to know that we might kind of do this once a year, but mm-hmm. um, that's just not the case for these other other people. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, that sort of goes into a little bit of what we were talking about, a little bit about like cultural appropriation and appreciation of like really understanding how things are used. Like, yeah, it's great if I'm reading this, you know, good morning message that they use in that culture, but do I understand how it's used and what it's used for? You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and that it's not just a once a year, like for them, it's a daily thing. And like talking about that, um, I think is really important. Right. Um, yeah. That makes me think um, we put together kind of just an idea around Thanksgiving. Um, like if you, so if we are, if one is inspired to kind of incorporate some of these books into their Thanksgiving celebration, I think that what, um, what we've been, told is to really avoid avoid sharing things if this is if uh let me how do i say this um 
please do not think that incorporating we are grateful into your Thanksgiving celebration means that you can also kind of pull a book off the shelf that is that mythologized version of Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. right? This isn't like a, I'm going to balance it out with this other thing. Yeah. It's like, we need to avoid stories that misrepresent mm-hmm. the, that, that, that present the myth that misrepresent native peoples. That Even just like that story. yesterday, my wife, Kat went to um, the store, went to Walmart and we always will look in the kids book section. Cause sometimes they actually have some good stuff and they're a little cheaper there. Uh, and um she found one she knew that I was doing um that I was looking for books about you know this topic and she found one that was about thankfulness and the first page was like thanks you know it was like thanks for the the you know uh column you know the settlers for being so nice to the Native Americans and she was like what (laughs) it was like the first page and it was like a new book and she was just like ah I was like, hide that in the back, right? In the back of the bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. So we oh really need to. We need part of decolonizing this holiday and decolonizing our bookshelves is is removing those problematic books, like removing the stories. I mean, some of them we can argue. There's if we're if we're using them as a jumping off point for conversation, sure. But remove these books that have that have this messaging, this inaccurate messaging that that's hurtful and harmful. Um, yeah. So, uh, and when you need to figure out what to replace it with, um, we're going to give you some more (laughs) options right now. Um, book number two for me, let me pull up the right tab. Which tab? Where is my tab? Um, uh, another book that I want to recommend is called Oasis and the World Famous Bannock. Mm. And it is written by Dallas Hunt, um, who is a member of the Wapiso, oh gosh, I'm gonna butcher that. This is this is me not doing my homework like I should have. Cat, cut all this, please. Let me try this one more <laughs> time. Um, Dallas Hunt uh, is the author and is a teacher, a writer, and a member of the Wapisosippi, the Swan River First Nation, in Treaty Eight territory in northern Alberta, Canada. Um, and it is illustrated by Amanda Strong, who identifies as a Michif Indigenous filmmaker, media artist, and stop-motion director, currently based out of the unceded Coast Salish Territory, also known as Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, and this book was published by Highwater Press in 2018. And um, it is the story of a child whose grandmother makes bannock which is a type of fry bread or i believe that those they are almost used interchangeably so it is um sometimes you'll see it termed fry bread other times you'll see it termed Mm -hmm. bannock and we can please do at me if i'm wrong with that but that's what my research has led me to believe so i'm actually featuring two books that talk about bannock slash fry bread um and it is a story of a of a child whose grandmother has has sent her off to deliver, um, to deliver the bannock to a relative. So it's almost kind of a Red Riding Hood setup, right? Like mm-hmm. okay, so she okay. heads out into the forest with this bannock, and she ends up accidentally, like she's tripping along delightedly, and ends up dropping it in the river. Oh, so, no. uh, <laughs> and then um, 
but so rather that's where it takes a turn. So there is no, there is no wild creature that is trying to um, stalk uh, this child <laughs> to stalk a wasp. Well, that's good. <laughs> yes. Instead, all of the animals, um, she kind of seeks help. She seeks aid from all of the different animals in the forest to help her recreate this bannock. And they each give her an ingredient to help create it. And so there's a couple things I love about that. I love that the animals are helpers. I love mm. that the owl in this book uses they, them pronouns. What? It's just like subtly in there, like all of the other, every animal is kind of referred to, or I believe most animals in the story are referred to using pronouns at some point in the little, in that bit of text. And the owl uses they, them. I love that. Yeah. Um, and so all of the animals help and then they, it's not like a, the other thing I love is that it's not this, um, there's no, oh no. And then she's going to try to frantically recreate the bannock. Like, no, she takes all the ingredients and goes back to her grandmother to say like, this happened. Here's what I'm trying to do to Aww. solve the problem. Um, which I think is also like fantastic, right? It's like such a great, um, iteration of like, how to what to do if you if you make a mistake right um and so uh she goes back tells grandma and it says kokum laughed it's okay no see some we can make some more together um but we still need some um and then she they're still missing one ingredient and then the bear shows up with the missing ingredient Oh, yeah. and um, what a good story. It's a, it's delightful, and uh, so some of the words in the book are written in Cree, which is also really great. It's like mm -hmm. a lot of Cree language incorporated, and then at the end there is a recipe. There is a Cree to English translation with the pronunciation awesome. provided, um, uh, you know, phonetically, and. Yeah, it's just a very, the art is lovely. Um, it is a narrative, but it also really, I think, feels to me, brings together those ideas of family and so sharing food. This is sort of like a side note, but that's something that I think is like, I really appreciate when a book is intended for an audience that does not know how to pronounce the words when the pronunciation is included either in the book itself, like in the text of the book itself or in the back. Um, because I know there have been books that I, I was reading two, two books today that I received. One was about Kwanzaa and, um, I really appreciated that it just in the text of the book, uh, you know, for the principles of Kwanzaa and for Swahili words, which is like, here's how you pronounce it. I was like, that's really helpful to me. So I don't have to look in the back flip to the back of the book or look it up. Um, and, uh, you know, so I just had really appreciated that. And then I was reading another book that similarly, it was about, um, uh, Christmas traditions around the world and it did not include any kind of guide in the back or in the book and I was just like butchering these words and I was just like this is like a 30 page book for me to look up and remember the pronunciation of all these words is just like wild so right. I really appreciate when they include that either in the back or in the you know story because it's like you know it's not just like I'm looking up one word and learning how to say it like if it's a book where it's really out of my you know <laughs> depth you know language wise it's like how am I supposed to, you know, remember how to pronounce all these words? <laughs> exactly. It's a very nice scaffold to include. Yeah. Um, yeah, and absolutely. right, it can be a barrier if 
which I mean, and we're talking about, you do want to do that homework, right? Like same with names, like you want to take the time to learn it, but. Um, also it can be intimidating and it can be a barrier. Right, sure. exactly. So we, so yes, in, when authors, when creators include it as either part of the text or in the back matter, that is, that can be a really, really helpful scaffold for families and educators. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that I believe this author, um, Dallas Hunt, um, is one of, of several authors, like Canadian-based authors, who are really trying to um, bring back and celebrate. I, I shouldn't say bring back, but I believe that there is this intentional effort to um, really celebrate the Cree language um, mm-hmm. and to bring those words into stories. Um, so there's a lot of intentionality around that, which is mm-hmm. probably why it's so well done here. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's a, a story that I, I think celebrates the things that we want to celebrate around this time of year and time of Thanksgiving um, for those of us who celebrate that can that can be brought in. And that this book comes highly recommended by Dr. Reese. So with Dr. Reese's mm-hmm. stamp of approval, it gets mine <laughs> too. Um, and in a similar vein, um, and the other thing I love about Oasis and the world famous Bannock is that it is a, it's a story, right? It's a narrative that yeah. includes these great values, but it is um, kind of a, you know, a problem and a solution story. So uh, high, high, high engagement level potential. Um, the other story or the other, another book that I want to talk about is Fry Bread, which mm-hmm. is written by Kevin Mailer, Maylard. It's so funny. I almost included this one as well. Oh, really? Well, that. that doesn't yeah. surprise me that we have similar tastes and good books. <laughs> um, and uh, who is an enrolled citizen of the Seminole Nation and uh, illustrated by Juana Martinez Neal, who is Peruvian American, uh, who lives in Arizona. And Juana Martinez Neal, her debut story um, won a Caldecott medal. And it is called, oh my gosh, how am I forgetting her little, her name? It's how she got her name. And I'm forgetting the first word. It's sitting on my son's bookshelf right now. Ah. Um, Alma, Alma and how she got her name by Juana Martinez Neal. So um, I was excited to see another book illustrated um, by, by Ms. Martinez Neal when I ran across this book Mm. and it is this, um, it is not, it's more akin to, we are grateful, um, than to, uh, Oasis and the world famous Bannock and that it isn't, it isn't a narrative story. It is more of a poem or a celebration of, uh, of fry bread and kind of the, 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 the role that the experience of making and enjoying fry bread plays um, in, in indigenous people's kind of um, lived experience. So let me, let me pull up, let me pull up, pull out the story so that I can give you a sense of what I mean when I say that. Um, let me get this. Do, 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 do. Pull this up. Um, so essentially, um, it begins, fry bread is food, flour, salt, water, cornmeal, baking powder, perhaps milk, maybe sugar, all mixed together in a big bowl. Um, and so in this first page, you see a, a woman holding a baby and all sorts of children kind of each 
dancing behind her holding these different ingredients and there's just a lot of energy in these illustrations and um yeah, you see really children beautiful. oh yeah with like a wide range of skin tones um all like very excited to be to be about to put all of these things together in a big bowl so it starts kind of literally like right fry bread is food um and then it says the next is fry bread is shape hands mold the dough flat like a pancake round like a ball or puffy like manna's softest pillow um and uh fry bread is sound fry bread is color fry bread is flavor um fry bread is time right so that that concepts around what fry bread is and what it means um, is getting increasingly abstract and we're talking more about um so fry bread is time on weekdays and holidays supper or dinner powwows and festivals moments together with family and friends um fry bread is history uh and and they do reference here um the long walk the stolen land, strangers in our own world with unknown food. We make new recipes from what we had. Um, and in this picture, all of the children are kind of listening and and uh, with with worried, I would say worried looks on their faces because they're they're clearly they're hearing the true story um, of history. Um, and then the next page, it's fry bread is place. And you see these children dancing kind of all across the continent. Um, fry bread is nation. And then it lists out many, many nations, ends with hundreds and hundreds of others. Um, fry bread is everything. Round, flat, large, small, north, south, east, west, brown, yellow, black, white, familiar and foreign, new and old, we come together. And then in that instance, it's like um, the fry bread has kind of become the moon. There's a big, beautiful moon. Um, and fry bread is us. We are still here, elder and young, friend and neighbor. We strengthen each other to learn, change, and survive. Fry bread is you. And then it's a, in that last doubles page spread, it's the baby who's been with us since the beginning, sitting on this beautiful blanket and with a big, happy smile, um, chowing down on some puffy, wonderful fry bread. <laughs> um, and then at the end, there is a recipe, um, as it was in the case in um, Oasis and the World Famous Bannock. Fry bread includes a recipe and a description. And then um, the author's note actually is very rich um, for each page. So fry bread is food. So um, for each page, there's all of this rich detail about the inspiration behind the idea, um, what it means for the author. Um, so like, for example, it says, when I make fry bread, I start with a big bowl. And then for fry bread is shape, it says some people may be familiar with fry bread that is flat and like kind of just gives a lot of rich detail and context mm. for each of these ideas. Um, and it's, you know, several pages long for each um, kind of double page spread. There's this, there are these notes. Um, and then there's also um, some references, right? So listed some ref reference books and then also some other notes for the notes. So it's very mul multiple layers, multiple That's layers awesome. here. And then the final illustration is, is all of them together. 
um, everyone that's been featured in the story all gathered around. Um, and then the, uh, the end pages, right, are lists of, it looks like every nation um, and tribe. I mean, they, it's written out as tribe tribes, nations, it says um, Maricopa Indian community, Samish Indian nation, San Carlos Apache tribe. So it's just literally a list of all of the, probably my, my guess would be the recognized um, sovereign tribal nations. Um, and it's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. that, that sounds like some awesome back matter. Yeah, we know we love good back matter. <laughs> um, and so uh, I think I think this book works on so many different levels. Like I said, it's a little bit less of a narrative story, but there's definitely a, a, a cast of characters to follow. Um, and so there is a lot of kind of energy in the illustrations that will hold readers' attention. And there's just such a richness to both the kind of original, I would say, poem, but then also the ideas and the context that are provided in the back. Um, so this is just a beautiful book that, again, kind of celebrates togetherness and celebrates um, sharing food, but also really celebrates um, this tradition um, in a way that I haven't seen done before. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what we were talking about is just like, you know, part of, you know, decolonizing Thanksgiving is like just talk, talking about and learning about these, you know, indigenous nations and, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be right. We both included a book that was, you know, sort of um, about thanks, but like, it doesn't need, it doesn't need to necessarily be a book that's like, this is why that's not true. Or like, let's talk about, the, you know, it can just be like, hey, let's talk and learn about these indigenous nations. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, I will give one shout out to an honor book like in kind of that same vein mm -hmm. I guess I'll do one really short I won't go into such detail but I will mention that a book that we really love at Shift Book Box is called First Laugh Welcome Baby mm -hmm. and it is written um, um, written by Roseanne Tahi and Nancy Bo Flood and Roseanne Tahi um, was born into the charcoal streak division of the red running into the water clan and born for the salt people clan um, and collaborated with, with Dr. Nancy Bo Flood um, when the two met in a course that Dr. Flood was teaching at Northern Arizona University on the Navajo Nation. And it's illustrated by um, Jonathan Nelson, who's Diné, born and raised in the Four Corners area of New Mexico. Um, um, from the Towering House clan and the Mexican clan. And first laugh, welcome baby. Um, kind of as we talk about how we need to reach beyond our comfort zone, uh, the comfort zone of our traditional Thanksgiving myth and instead explore and celebrate, not appropriate and like take over, but understand and come to know and appreciate the celebrations and the holidays and the traditions um, of indigenous peoples. So the first laugh celebration uh, is an important event in the life of a new baby. And so essentially in this story, the whole family is trying to get this new baby to laugh because they want to be like the winner. Um, I love be, that. Yeah, it's such a sweet, like it's such a great idea, right? Um, so it's uh, 
And so when the baby first laughs, it prompts this celebration that marks the official welcome into the family. Uh, and so throughout the story, everyone's trying to get the baby to laugh and it does a beautiful job of incorporating um, like in the same way that Oasis and the world famous Bannock just incorporates um, these great like themes of, of togetherness and family and helping and how it does such a nice job of, of kind of addressing the problem solving and the solution finding. Um, this book does a nice job of showing like um, a indigenous family um, um, from the Navajo nation, like living like in a high rise and, and mm. how babies cared for, like grandma's still there, but this is not, they're not living on the res. They're living, you know, they're working parents living um, in a more quote unquote modern space. Um, and then at the end, they have this big gathering, this big celebration, and there's so many people featured wearing modern dress and kind of maybe some traditional dress mixed in and they're playing basketball and they're sharing food. And it's just a beautiful, um, kind of has all of that messaging that we've been talking about while also being kind of informative about a celebration that is not one that perhaps many white um, kind of Western oriented people know about. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a fondness for this book. It's really beautiful. And I've been following the other work um, that the, that uh, uh, Jonathan Nelson is a, an, the illustrator um, who does these great graphic novels. Um, the first is called The Wool of Jonesy. Um, so just a lot of I've been other people to follow, other people to know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. All right. And I think, I think those are my books. Well, I hope you know those are your books. <laughs> um thank you so much for sharing i'm so excited to to check some of those out and um i i hope that next year there will be even more books in this category that we can talk about um yes. and I'm, I'm definitely excited for we are still here um to come out and to get my hands on that one um and then you know i hope that there'll be even more soon i think that we're we're living in like a very exciting time for children's books for diverse kids lit for sure um because you know things are it actually exists unlike when I was a kid I feel like <laughs> right yes it is it's nice to have to have these these great options these own voices books and these mm -hmm. books of people who are if they're not own voices who are really working to do their homework and kind yeah. of like come get other people and and get the truth out there yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm uh, all I know is I'm running out of room on my bookshelf. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna have to get a bookshelf, I guess. <laughs> but uh, anyway, to buy another bookshelf, Seth. I know I don't have room for one though. I'm literally looking around my room like, where can I put it? <laughs> wall mounted. I don't even have wall space. I, I literally, it's it's ridiculous in my office. It's just all kids' supplies, guys. <laughs> um, but anyway, thanks so much, Rebecca, for joining me as always been a blast it always is yeah thank you thank you for this opportunity to dig in and for introducing me to some books i hadn't heard about and yeah, yeah likewise okay and remember stay rad